Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Small Talk Podcast. My name is Eva Gomez, and I'm a Senior Professional Development Specialist at Boston Children's Hospital. And uh, we are very excited. We have a wonderful podcast today. But in the meantime, I want to introduce my two co-hosts who are joining us today. Hi, everyone. My name is Denise Downey. I'm the Nursing Professional Development Specialist for the Emergency Department here at Boston Children's Hospital. And along with me is my colleague, Kate. Hi, everyone. My name is Kate Dockman. I'm the Clinical Director of Innovation for the Inpatient Medical Programs. So today we have a very, very special guest. Her name is Pamela Chamorro or Pam Chamorro. She is the Director of Social Work here at Boston Children's Hospital. And we're excited to have her because we really want to get to know about the role of the social worker from soup to nuts. We want to know how did you get started? Tell us about the history and also learn a lot more and explore about the social work profession. So with that said, Pam, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. I want to get right to the conversation and the questions, if that's okay with you. Sure. Talk about your journey into social work and, you know, why why social work and why are you passionate about what your role is at Boston Children's? Thank you for your interest. Social work is uh, such an important part of the hospital, and we're really excited to be able to talk about it a little bit because I think one of the things that is a struggle is that not everybody knows what social workers do. And quite honestly, when I was starting out, I didn't know what social workers did, even though my mother was a social worker and my father was in healthcare. So you would think that it was in our blood, but I didn't actually have a good idea of what that was. So I started uh, my undergraduate degree uh, was in early childhood education and Spanish. And I thought at first I wanted to be a teacher. And then I realized that I wasn't a very good teacher. And so I was getting to my senior year and I needed to figure out whether I was going to get a job or what I was going to do. And I went to my mother and I said, you know, I I can't be in the classroom for six hours. It's not going to work for me. And she said, well, what about social work? And I said, well, if I don't have to get a job, this sounds like a great idea. So I went forward and I got my master's in social work. And actually my second year internship was here at Children's Hospital. So I worked with the Latino team at Outpatient Psychiatry, which was a thing 25 years ago, but is no longer. Um, And I did outpatient psychiatry or mental health uh, support for families, uh, Spanish-speaking families. And I did that my second year and I fell in love with it. And then I stayed at Children's at that point. And I I graduated and then I stayed at Children's and I did a fellowship. And I was on the inpatient unit in inpatient psychiatry on Bader. And I did that for a little bit. And then I was ultimately hired here at Children's. And I worked, actually I had three jobs. I worked part-time here at Children's within HIV. This was when HIV was a bigger thing, sort of at the beginning of that epidemic. And I um, worked part-time in Boston Public Schools doing school-based therapy. And then I, for fun, um, which says a little bit about my social life, uh, I worked in the emergency department. And so I I did that and I did that for three years. And I left and I um, realized that I really loved the crisis component of social work, that I didn't really want to do the longer-term therapy components, but I really wanted to do the crisis piece, the fast-paced environment. And there was a grant at the time through the Department of Mental Health where I was able to create a response network for the city of Boston. So it was a grant from DPH and DMH. And we went forward and created that response network for, it was asking us to respond to the youth of Boston post-incident. So homicides, suicides, 
anything post-incident, then how do you create a network to support those kids? So we created a network, and I did that for a, a good long time, probably about 10 years. And that was the really most interesting work that I have done so far. I have to say, I, have to, I loved that work a lot. I loved going into the community. I loved partnering with the community. I loved knowing that I came to the table with some trauma expertise, but they came to the table with the expertise for their their community and their kids. They know those kids best. So we created this network of responders. Ultimately, there was about 3,000 people. We would train youth workers and street workers and clergy and school-based personnel and hospital social workers and anybody that worked with kids. We would train them and then we would partner with them to provide response post-incident. It's still around today. There's pockets of it in the city of Boston. There's a, a network that that remains. Um, but I did that work for a long time. And then I came back to Children's actually in 2006. And I uh, worked with the child protection team. I was a consultant with the child protection team. And then I also ran the domestic violence program, the AWAKE program. I was the PI on that. And so I did that work for a while. And I moved into the assistant director position in 2013. And then I moved into the director position in 2018. So here I am. I'm not quite sure how I ended up here. I never really thought I would be in leadership. And I thoroughly enjoy it. I want to ask a question specific to your experience, and then we can elaborate on social workers in general. But it sounds like you've had a variety of um, experiences, both within the hospital, but also very much ingrained in the community. And and I know for many of us who are in clinical roles, we don't we don't have the opportunity to do that. So can you share a little bit about how does being embedded in the community inform your practice when you come back to the inpatient setting like how does that how do you translate that information because i think it's it's a it's, it would be a very way you know important way of having awareness of what what you see in the hospital knowing and understanding the background of the community can you talk about that a little bit yeah i i think it's a, actually a really important question in thinking about how we should approach social work generally i think when i did that work what i knew to be true was that there was a boundary to the work that i could do with the with the family without them coming to the table and being willing to do that so everything that we did was voluntary nothing was pushed on a family it was always asking them to partner with us in that work the idea that Families should be supported in their natural environments, meaning their their communities and in their churches and in their schools, in their area that they know best, and that they should receive that support there and that they should be seen as professionals in that environment. They know their kids best. That idea, the idea of, of honoring who they are and what they're bringing to the table, has really driven the work that I do for all of these years. And now as a leader, when I think about that, what that means for me is that we have 300 social workers here at Children's. Um, it's a big department. And my job is to work for them, which means that I bring my experience and my expertise to the table, but they are doing that too. And we are partnering. And my job is to work for them to make sure that they can do all of the things that they can do to be successful in that environment. And that partnership is incredibly important. That community-based work taught me that that was really what my style of leadership is and hopefully allows for a, an incredible level, level of aut autonomy for our social workers, really saying, you are bringing this expertise to the table. Let's see that and how it's going to flourish. And my job then is to just allow it to happen. 
right? To support as much as possible to see that it gets there. And that experience working in the community helped me to really understand that as a leader. That's such an important piece to highlight and recognize in, in your experience and also in, in the work of the, that social workers do every day. As a follow-up question to that, your experience is reflective of, of all the many things that social workers do or can do. And, you know, a lot of clinicians uh, have some level of understanding of the role of the social worker. Even for me, I don't know that I fully can appreciate and understand what do social workers do so or with their roles, the multiple things they can do. So can you elaborate on the full scope and dimensions of the practice? And what are some of the things that clinicians, you know, other clinicians uh, don't know about what social workers do? We practice social work very differently here at Children's than, than most hospital-based social work is practiced. So I'll go into that part of it because I think it's an important part to understand. But what I will say about the profession of social work is that the degree of masters of social work is incredibly versatile. It really allows you to do a little bit of anything. We have social workers that are in schools, hospitals, mental uh, health practices, they're in veteran centers, they're in child welfare agencies, they're in the criminal justice system, they're in corporations, there's state, local, federal levels. They're doing a little bit of everything. And what they're really doing is ultimately bringing the voice of people to that table and helping to expand the narrative around what happens with families, what are the barriers, how are we supporting them, thinking about them as a whole person instead of pieces of that person. And social workers play that role to, to expand and partner with other people to see that full picture, which I think is an incredibly important piece in all areas, especially in a hospital when you have a really short amount of time to accomplish a whole heck of a lot. The ability to really get from point A to point B, which point A is what's happening here, point B is, and what are we going to do about it? It takes a whole lot to understand what that narrative is in the meantime. And so social workers in all of those environments are helping to bring that narrative to the table. Here at Children's, we have we have 300 social workers. And at Children's, there are 300 masters and uh, PhD level clinicians. And that means that there's an incredible amount of expertise here. Most hospital-based social work departments are really case management-based, meaning they're doing a lot of work around discharge planning and durable medical equipment. And that is incredibly important work. And in a pediatric environment like children's, we have to expand that offering. It has to look more comprehensive because the situations are difficult and what's happening for families are so comprehensive. So fortunately, we partner well with case management. They, they do that work beautifully. And that leaves then for social work, the highly clinical component of what's presenting. So social workers as partners, again, the word partner is incredibly important for us. Doctors, nurses, social workers, bringing the full picture of what's happening to with the family to the table. And then figuring out what are we going to do with that? Where are we going to go with that? What's important to know is that even though we have 300 social workers, we're not everywhere. We're only in 95 different programs. And what that means is that there is actually a lot of inequity in access to social work. In the areas where we do have social work, we have uh, social workers doing a little bit of everything. Many of them are doing a billable component, meaning they are meeting families one by one, doing that mental health component assessment, 
always assessment, understanding what's happening, and then support. And that support might look like individual therapy or group work or family therapy in those areas where there is psychology, social work, usually just the family component, and psychology does the child component. So we've got social workers on the inpatient units of psychiatry. We um, have social workers on the inpatient medical units. On the medical units, what they're doing is the full gamut of that work outside of a billable component. So they're doing all of that work with a lot more movement, meaning they're not confined by the billable hours. So they are meeting with families. They're helping families to adjust to diagnosis, helping families to explore the barriers to their care and what that means and how do we decrease those barriers. They are helping families through the death and dying process. They are helping families with any sibling stuff, perhaps, or what kind of world is waiting for them after a new diagnosis and where, how are they going to manage what that looks like? So adjustment to whatever is presenting. So the work is incredibly versatile. And I think the beauty of social work for me is that every day is something different and it allows for incredible flexibility to do what's needed for that family as opposed to being confined by certain parameters. There really is a little bit of everything. I'll also say that our social workers are, well, first I will say that I have the best job of everybody because my job is to support them. And it's a really beautiful thing to watch them do what they do. They are subject matter experts in any topic. They are doing research. They are doing presentations. They are publishing. They're doing all of the things that you would want to do. And I will say that the privilege of being here at Children's allows for that. We're a very lucky department in that sense. And we practice very differently and that shows. So it's a beautiful thing. I will say that. I'm very, very proud. The posters, the the research, your the social work team is out there just as many of us are doing, you know, discovery and generating knowledge. Can can you speak to that and can you give us a little like sample of, of what, what some projects that you've seen from our social work team at Boston Children's? Oh, yeah. So we do have a research committee. Even though we're a little bit of everywhere, what we do is come together in our committee work in order to be able to engage. So even though you're one social worker in one program compared to maybe a social worker in a program where there's 16 or 18 social workers, you still have the opportunity to come together and engage each other. So we have our research committee, and that research committee works really hard to support social workers in doing research either within their programs, whatever that looks like. If they have an identified, already identified research program in that program, then it helps that social worker to feel more confident in engaging in that program, right? So a social worker might say, well, I really like it, but I'm not quite sure, or I don't necessarily feel confident. Our PhD level social workers are supporting our master's level social workers to then say, you know what, get in there, do what you need to do, get excited about it, participate in that. And then we have our other other social workers that feel a little bit more confident and they start putting together research projects that are moving the dial within that program and creating various uh, opportunities for studying, like how, what is the impact of this on this, right? So we've had a couple of social workers that have gotten some idea grants. The two that come to my mind specifically, so 
we during the pandemic we had a group of social workers that were studying the impact of social work and and the pandemic and what that looked like what were how were social workers able to be impactful and what was the experience of social workers during that time and measuring how that need for strong mental health during a time of such sort of turmoil social workers were able to support how they experienced it and how did you experience it at the beginning and then what was the end and so we went forward and explored that. We currently have a scientific review committee uh, specifically for social workers. And we also just created a partnership with the Center for Social Work Innovation in Healthcare at BU. And so that's a collaboration that is just getting off the ground. Our first research project is focusing on child protection. And we're looking at a period of time where those consults were coming in and what does that look like and, and who were where were 51As filed and who was filing those 51As and who was having those 51As filed on them and what does all of that look like? So really exploring that component of the social work job. The reality of it is that social workers are participating in all of these different areas in their programs. And it's exciting because their voice is being recognized as being part and important of that work. That's super, super important to know. I think that's sort of like a very little known fact that that social workers are involved in innovation and finding new knowledge that is important to be discovered as we help our populations. I wanted to ask another question a little bit separate from the research piece. Concretely, I know that many times uh, clinicians in in the environment, your you know colleagues that work with you probably will say will refer a family in crisis, right? And that family is experiencing, like, let's say um, they're processing a new diagnosis. A lot of you have extensive training and knowledge on the therapeutic interventions of of assisting a family in crisis. Can you talk a little bit about what that's what that looks like? Like, what do you do when you get in? Because I feel that many times, even if I'm a nurse taking care of a patient, I might have to run out of the room, and I don't know what you did, but I know you talked to them. So, what what happens during those interactions? Can can you describe for those of us who are not in the room what kind of goes on there? You know, absolutely. It varies. It really is about what's happening with that family and how are we able to engage. We're not always able to do an extensive engagement that first time, right? What we're really beginning to do is build that relationship and figure out what's happening with the family. So when we're walking in, Initially, if we've not met that family before, what we're doing is a full comprehensive psychosocial assessment. And what that means is finding out all the things. What's happening with this family? Who's in this family? Where are they coming from? What gotten them to this point? Uh, What supports do they have available to them? All of the components of who they are. That comprehensive psychosocial assessment then helps us to figure out what the next step is. Where do we go? from there? Is it just as simple as a one and done? Meaning are we just going in and then coming out and there's not much more that we're going to do at that point? Or is this something that we're going to continue to provide support around for a long period of time? A lot of that is really dictated based on what is the environment we're engaging them. When you're in the emergency department, you're in and out, right? You have a period of time where you're able to engage a family, but you might not see that family ever again. Um, if you are on the outpatient side, social workers have much more comprehensive uh, engagements with families. They are following these families 
oftentimes for years and years and years. And so the need and the interventions change. Sometimes the interventions are really specific around a protocol, right? We are going to, we have a new diagnosis, so we're going to do three sessions, and those sessions are really targeted around maybe what does it mean to have a new diagnosis of diabetes? And so we're going to target in these three sessions, these three different topics to help you get from point A to point B, and then figure out what you need in your home environment to find, to feel supported, to to deal with that new diagnosis. The goal of social workers at in our environment at Children's is to understand um, what's happening and then also acknowledge that we are not necessarily a primary support for many, many of these families because they go back to their home environments. And so our job is to supplement what's happening uh, in that environment, right? How do you increase support for them? How do you make sure that you can decrease barriers and make referrals and make connections so that they have that support in their home environment? They may be coming back and forth to children's um, for specialty care, but really that home environment is going to be their bread and butter. Um, so our interventions are different. It depends on where you are. It depends on what you're doing. That doesn't it's hard to really identify. There's some, you might go into a, a session with a family and it's really specific. You're doing therapy, you're targeting this issue, you're talking about that issue. Or you might go into a situation and you're assessing, is this suicidality? Is this not? Are we, what, what level of concern do we have? You may do some of those interventions. You might do longer term therapy with a kid or you might do group work with that kid. But really in those initial assessments on the inpatient floor, it's about let's understand what's happening first by fully assessing, then let's figure out what that looks like. Oftentimes the smallest engagements are the biggest impact. How do you create a multitude of small engagements to then begin to build a relationship to a larger relationship? And we often use resources as that doorway, as that entryway into engaging a family. So if they don't want to talk to us about whatever personal something they're experiencing, but they are willing to have conversations about, hey, are there concerns about transportation or is there housing instability? Can we talk a little bit about some of the resource piece? Then that is an entryway into larger components of what's happening for that family. And being in the emergency department, I know the social workers that we have there are phenomenal. And oftentimes what we have to do is call them into certain situations. And what I mean by that is if a patient comes in, like say an infant that experienced uh, trauma that is, you know, unable to be explained by the parents. Yeah. As medical providers, we're obligated to call social work in to do an assessment to see you know, is this child abuse or was it truly an accident? And I feel like the families get very suspicious when we tap into social work or if we say to them, we're going to have social work come talk to you. It's almost like they're going to be punished for something that they may have done or did not do. I'm just wondering if there's a way that we can change that perception and really advocate for social work to be involved more often and not just in these negative events or, you know, trauma or unexplained injury. Like there's so much other work that the social workers do. How can we as nurses really promote all of that work? I love that question. Thank you for that. 
first I want to say what you're touching on is a really, there's a belief that social workers do one thing, right? That social workers take your child. That's often the association that's made between social work and children, what happens with children. On a larger scale, it's a hard perception to change because that certainly does happen in some scenarios where Department of Children and Families is assessing a situation in there and that child is removed. Social workers here at Children in those situations partner with Department of Children and Families, but those decisions are really made by DCF and not by social work. But you're right, we do have to walk into situations that are uncomfortable and we have to be comfortable in that uncomfortable situation to figure out where we're going to go with it. I think that one of the ways that we can begin to normalize social work is by including them in our narratives about how we treat people here at Children's. If we can begin to acknowledge as we work with families that we are trying to support the whole family and that includes a team of people and that includes the nurse and the doctor and the child life specialist, but it also includes social work and nutrition and clergy. And that introduction, those wonders to decrease the perception that it isn't the norm when you're walking into those um, situations. If we can begin to talk about the care as a holistic care, and I'm not talking about it just from a social work perspective. I mean, there's many, many other disciplines besides doctors and nurses that are here that should be included within that. And I think sometimes the intention isn't to not include them, but it's just when you've got so much going on and it's such a fast-paced environment and there's so many things, remembering that sort of larger narrative is hard, is a really hard thing to do. So if I had a suggestion, then I would say, I think inclusive narrative around how do we think about treatment here at Children's Hospital. We're really thinking about the whole of the experience for a family, not just the child, but the whole experience of the family. That's going to begin to change it. I think words matter sometimes, right? Sometimes that in the beginning of a cultural change happens with just beginning to speak it out loud. And then we embrace the idea. And Children's is doing that actively. They just named a VP of Social Work and Family Services, right? That is saying social work and family matters here. We are looking at the whole child. That is an entirely new thing for healthcare. I do not think that there is another social work, uh, VP of social work in another um, healthcare setting. And so Children's is already making that statement. So how do we begin to incorporate that within the everyday care of, hey, here's what we do here's what we have. These are all of the things. We are super blessed here. We have access to a lot. And as a family, this is what we're doing. As a hospital, this is what we're doing to support you as a family. This is what it would look like. This is what it might look. And beginning to change that narrative, because at the very beginning, that's what we're going to do. And then towards the end, we maybe we'll have maybe we'll have social work in all areas. We're going to, we could take over the world. That would be fantastic if we could begin to have social workers everywhere. Not just because I believe social workers should be everywhere, but because actually you as nurses and doctors deserve that level of support. You have, you're like a teacher, right? You've got this hat and that hat, and this hat and this one. And what we know to be true is that the acuity is rising and you can't do it all. And you shouldn't have to do it all. You should be able to have a team of people 
from a um, trauma standpoint, every time we think about exposure, one of the strongest healing components or one of the strongest ways that you can promote healing in those moments is by partnering with a team of people and feeling strongly that you have that partnership. You probably have it to a certain extent now, but if you were able to add the component of social work to really sort of round all that out or child life specialists to round that out, that team is health producing, not just for the family, but for the care team, because you feel as if you're getting to all of the components and you don't feel as if you're stretching beyond your capability. I mean, our nurses are pretty capable. So I, I say that and I know how good they are at their jobs. But social workers are specially trained. Child life specialists are specially trained. We should be honoring that and supporting our teams in a more comprehensive way. And I think Children's is making the statement they're going there. Pam, I love what you said about emphasizing really the role of the team approach for family-centered care. I think that's something that, at least from the ER, we don't always think of the team approach in the broader sense because we're focused on the acute illness or the acute injury. So I really love how you want to emphasize that and how we need to pull you in the social worker team in from the very beginning, not later on. We need to get you sooner rather than later. I would want that. I mean, it's better for us to be in there sooner rather than later, right? Because then we're able to support you at the beginning. I really want people to hear that I don't know what social work can do, meaning we can do so much and we don't know what we can do until you ask us, what, tell us what you need, and then we're going to figure it out with you. And that's the beauty of our social workers, that they get in there and they probably make it up to a certain extent probably feel uncomfortable, may not know necessarily what the right answer is, but they figure it out and they work hard to partner with um, whoever is asking of their support. And so earlier is always better and we'll figure it out together what the end result will be. And the sooner we can get in there, the better, just because I think the outcome is always better for everybody. And from my experience too, you're not just supporting the patients and the families, but you're also supporting the providers which is so necessary, especially nowadays. I will say, I think that's our favorite part of the, the role. Working with patients and families is beautiful, but in many of these programs, we are the only social worker in that program. And that means we are the one bringing that perspective. And that also, uh, that perspective doesn't just stop with the patients and families. It also is perspective that partners with nursing and doctors in an effort to support them in doing their care. We do a lot. One of our social workers says, says it's 60-40. 60% of the work that we're doing is partnering with our teams to help our teams sort of move the, the agenda forward for the family. And then the other 40% is this patient and family component. I think that varies in different areas, but in those areas where there is a strong social work presence, I will say that there are role does not sort of end with the patients and the families. They really, really enjoy that collaboration and they enjoy the opportunity to see how one person is thinking about something and embrace the idea of uh, how are we going to get to the other side of this, not just from a nursing view of it or from a doctor view of it or from a child life specialist or clergy, but as a team in all of that. I was curious, Pam, you, you mentioned that the asking for social workers to come in to see a patient, the earlier, the better. 
in order to really maximize that opportunity to work with patients and make it better, or even with the team? How, what are some of the successes strategies that work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of what we've talked about already, which is having a low threshold for bringing social work in. I don't know what it's going to look like because it's, it can look so different in so many different environments. If there's something that goes through your head as a provider around, this is what I'm thinking, I'm not quite sure, am I just sort of overreacting to what's presenting? And those are the times when um, if you have access to a social worker, talk to them about it. Because I think what it does is that it brings to light the other facets of what's happening with that patient and family. It, I think the other thing is that we often assume that if social work is involved, it might end in a filing, a 51A filing for child protection, maybe having to sort of take extra time. And in an environment where things are really, really busy, that sometimes is hard. And it's, so sometimes people think, you know what, maybe not because it'll start this whole thing. And I will say, in order to really support families in the way that I think children's hospital would want them to be supported, sometimes it does take more time. Right. Sometimes it just is a necessary reality of what's presenting. But social work doesn't often end in a filing. Actually, I think most often the work that we're trying to do is to avoid a filing. We work really, really hard to try to engage that family to make sure that we have dotted our I's and crossed our T's to the nth degree before we go down that path of child protection. Because what we're again doing is trying to pull a family in to say, let's partner in this. It does take time. That's the hard part, right? It does take time to slow it down. But slowing it down sometimes creates a better outcome. And that is an important part for that family. I think when we have those gut experiences of, hmm, maybe I need to pull somebody in on this, the goal is always to make sure that we are honoring the family in that experience and giving them the opportunity to participate in that care. And that's ultimately, I think, what everybody would want in those moments. It's hard and it's time consuming. It's a struggle when the acuity is so high. I think for me, it's just trusting your gut and pulling social workers in during those moments. I will say the one thing that I kind of love is the feedback that I get around social work is I didn't even know what I didn't know, right? I didn't know that social workers did X, Y, or Z. I didn't know that. And that's a kind of a fun thing in a lot of ways because now it's like this full exploration into this other option, this other experience, this other way of doing things. And I really appreciate that opportunity. I did want to switch gears a little bit. I know we've been talking about patients and families and how we serve them and the best care that we can give. I just want to flip the table for a second. I know that the work that you do is both physically and emotionally exhausted. What do you do for self-care as social yeah. workers? Oh, that's a great question. So I will say from a departmental standpoint, unfortunately, I cannot mandate self-care. That means that social workers really have to have a practice of self-care in order to continue to do this work. And that needs to be part of the everyday practice of being a social worker because you won't survive till 20 years down the line if you don't have that embedded in the context of your work. How do I release the emotions that I retain when sitting with a family? 
And how do I um, ensure that it doesn't stick to me, right? We know trauma sticks to you. And so trauma work is the alleviation of that is part of being a social worker. That we learn getting our when we get our master's, and it's part of that educational component. So social workers have to work hard to have that be part of it. As a department, I will say this. While I can't mandate self-care, I can certainly create a department where we're not practicing alone. So all of our social workers have, have supervision. It's not an option. Um, they have access to peer group supervision. They have access to affiliation groups. Um, we work really hard to make sure that social workers understand that you don't have to know everything. You don't have to have all of the answers, but you do need to be the kind of person that asks for the support that you deserve. That is the expectation. And that plays out in a number of ways. You talk to your supervisor, you meet with your supervisors regularly. It is not an option. It is part of our structure within our department. You have access to all of these other supports. Simple things like, if I have a child protection case, then I consult child protection. Those are the two things. You can consult your supervisor, you can consult child protection, but that's an expectation, not because I don't believe our social workers know what to do or how to handle those cases, but because they don't have to practice alone. And so they call child protection and they consult with them and they might know the answers, but it's still better to do this work with, with somebody else that can help you with it. So those are expectations that we set within the department the community that we create of social workers. So in our social work department, all social workers are my responsibility. They they report to me, which means my responsibility is then to create an environment that supports them. So again, while I can't I can't mandate self-care, I can create an environment where they feel varying levels of support to do this work and the expectation that they don't have to be perfect that they do have to take care of themselves and create their own self-care regimen, whatever that looks like, that they ask for that support at any given moment. And that, in fact, if you're going to annoy somebody, it's when you don't ask for support than when you do, right? And then my job is to be responsive to them, right? I can't ask them to do all of this without me being available and responsive to them. And again, I already said this, I have the best job in my, because my job is to support them and I really, really enjoy that piece of it. So separately, I will tell you that from a self-care perspective, I do all the things I take self-care really, really seriously. I exercise and I, have, I talk to my family. I do acupuncture. I do acupuncture every two weeks. I try to recognize when I'm all messed up again and then I add something else. And when I change it up, it's constant, but you can't practice social work without having a strong commitment to self-care. And I hang out with my people and my people are incredibly important to me. As a Colombian woman, we have strong community and as a good Colombian, we also have a big family. So I hang out with my people. My people are, are what pulls me through. I love that. It's so good. That's such an important part of you know, being especially working frontline in this environment where we have right now so many, so many demands and the families are in a lot of distress. It's so important to to make sure that we always take that time to, you know, take care of ourselves too. That's yeah, great. absolutely. Pam, tell us what your best day is like. My best day. Gosh, 
I sound a little bit like a broken record, but I mean, my best day at work or my best day. I mean, my best day is not at work, just so you know. I mean, I love my job, but, <laughs> but part of the reason that I do this job and I stay in this job is because I really love this job. I love, listen, I did child protection for years. I worked in community-based trauma for a really, really long time. I have had my share of exposure um, and I recognized that I didn't necessarily want to do the clinical work face-to-face -face anymore with patients with families. I just didn't have that level of engagement any longer after after a good long time doing it. But I can create that environment for other social workers to practice to the top of their licensure. So my best days are like seeing their victories and seeing their advancements and seeing them and talking to them. I know this sounds strange, but... I really thoroughly enjoy when they cold call me and they just say, can I talk to you about this? And I try to be so responsive to that because it's one of my favorite things, mostly because one, it says that they feel comfortable engaging me and two, they shouldn't have to practice doing this alone. And so if their supervisor's not there or they're feeling they have to outreach to me about it, then I'm going to be responsive to that. So my best days are include engagement with them and the management piece of the job, I enjoy it, but I only do it because of them. Otherwise, I'm not overly interested in the management component. I never really thought I would be in a management position, but at the time that the opportunity was offered to me, it felt right in my gut, even though there was so much of it that felt like, oh, no, thank you. No, thank you very much. So I took that leap and I'm so glad that I did, but I never really thought that I would be here. And I also you know, we'll see what that hits me in the gut to say, hey, this sounds like a great opportunity. I haven't really found it quite yet. Right now, I'm pretty content with that part of it. So my best days here are really, really doing the job that they pay me to do and working for these social workers to take over the world. <laughs> I'm kind of joking about that, but I'm not really joking about it. I really like the idea of social workers everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> Turning back to the patients, you deal with a lot of, obviously, very vulnerable population. I'm curious, what happens when the asks go above what you can offer? How do you deal with that? You know what? The asks often go beyond what we can offer. This is the challenge of practicing social work. When we don't have social workers everywhere, what that means is that we're often having to put a boundary on, on something. One, it might be as, as concrete as I can't find them the home if they're home. I can't do that. I can set them up to get to a place where they eventually are able to do that, connect them with resources, that kind of thing. But I can't actually find the home for them in that moment. So sometimes it's just as simple as knowing that boundary. Actually, I come back to this study that was done. And what I remember about this study was that it was a study of social workers, a study of mental health professionals, not social workers, that were in the field for two years. And they had then, so what they were studying is those mental health professionals that left the field after two years. So here are all these people that had gone through, gotten their education, had done all of this work, and then after two years left the field. Why? Why did they leave the field? And what they found was that those people, that the common denominator was that they perceived their role to be sort of rescuers or saviors. And that, I think, is an incredibly important lesson. We are not rescuers or saviors. We are helpers or facilitators, right? That then leads me to the answer to your question, which is there are always things that we're not going to be able to do. 
And sometimes it's putting boundaries around what we can do in our programs. Sometimes it's putting boundaries on what we can do for a family. That's the constant practice of understanding your place in the context of that relationship. How am I going to create a position that's sustainable? How do I create a relationship that is health producing for that patient or family? It's understanding that you're bringing 50% of what's happening in that interaction to the table and the family, patient, whoever on the other side, and higher administrator, boss, whatever that looks like, is also bringing 50% of that conversation. And you're having to do that dance within that. You know, we're not able to fix it all. We're not, we're not everywhere. We're not able to do everything. And so oftentimes the conversation is around, let me do a little bit of education and tell you why. We try not to say no, but I will say that social workers are masters of getting from yes to the no, really with making people feel good about that no. The goal is never to necessarily say no. The goal is to help somebody understand why that request or why that thing or why that boundary or why that whatever is so hard. And so let me give you some information and tell me what I'm thinking. And I'm going to share with you my perspective on this. And then you tell me your piece of it. And then we're going to figure out, at the very least, if you'll you'll support it on the other side of whatever that is. And we get to a plan of action, maybe, even though we can't maybe find them in the house they need. I don't know. If that's a, that was a little bit of a convoluted way of getting there. But I think what it says is it's an incredibly important part of the job that we know that we can not do everything. And also we can still have an engagement that's respectful and hopefully satisfying in a lot of ways. But I think that's such a great connection because I think it ties back to what you were saying about earlier with Denise's question about how do you take care of yourself? If you are a, you know, a social worker or a professional in any of the helping professions and you within yourself are a balanced person, you will have the sense to understand that you will have a boundary around your role. There's only so much that you can do that you can provide, but you can, you can still be of assistance without crossing over in break, you know, uh, going beyond what's expected, which I think is where people, for me, at least I know when I've gotten into trouble is that, you know, going, you, you want to help so much that you forget that there's, there's some, some boundaries and limitations around it. But if you have balance within yourself as a helper and you can, you know, address that in a balanced way, you can transmit that to the patient and, and there still be some satisfaction and some positive outcomes. A lot of it is just the ability to sit with the uncomfortable. Maybe you're not able to give them what they need really concretely, right? Maybe you're not able to get there, but there's incredible value in sitting with them in that moment and sitting with your own discomfort and sitting with their discomfort, knowing that the answer isn't really what they want necessarily, but it is, it's still, there's still beauty and, and an opportunity there. It's just, a, it's a matter of sometimes of the professional being uncomfortable and, and being okay in that uncomfortable. That's a great answer. I'm going to flip over to, uh, I work with the Caitlin program and we have a mom on our team and she is working with you guys and making packets for folks. I don't know exactly what that project is. Curious if you could chat a little bit about, or you could chat a little bit about your relationship. So it's you know, the teen advisory committee, the family yeah. advisory committee. That's a great program. I'm really excited about that one. It was not my brainchild, but I certainly got to participate in it. Um, and I'm excited about that. 
we had the family advisory committee come to us and say like, what can we do? What else can we do? Um, and it was a question that was stemmed from watching many of these families in the emergency department during the pandemic and even now boarding in the hallways. How do you, how do you just bring compassion and dignity to that moment, right? That's the hope. How do we increase dignity and offer compassion, even though, again, to the point of like, what if you can't give them what they need? In those moments, you can still bring dignity and compassion. So that was the idea. And they said, could we create what ultimately became known as the, as care bundles? Um, can we create these care bundles for families to just go that small step, right? I can't get you out of the hallway or I can't find you a, a home or I can't, whatever that looks like. But if you need a clean shirt or if you need some toothpaste or if you need, or if there's an, I mean, some of the bigger items are if you have an unsafe uh, sleeping situation, getting social work involved and having a pack and play. And then there's all the things in between that present around what are the really small things that we can offer that we can actually produce in those moments to make that situation better? So there's a whole closet on the inpatient floors and social workers, you connect with a social worker to say whatever it is, hey, um, this mom is here on the inpatient floor and she doesn't have a comb. Um, can we get her some a comb? Can we get her socks? Can we get her some underwear? Can we get her like whatever that is, all of those things. It's just bringing dignity and compassion to that moment. So we have this care bundles program and it's that. It sits there and, they, and the family advisory committee has these like incredible worker bees that go off and they, I hand them some social work funding and they go off and they purchase all of these things and they make sure this closet is stocked. And it's a beautiful thing that we do on a really, really small scale. That was the brainchild of these people that wanted to bring dignity and compassion to the world. You brought up the the bad word of finances and uh -huh. funding. Yeah. Yeah. How are things like that funded? Yeah, so this is actually a really good question because social work only has a certain amount of money. So we have a chunk of money that supports all of our resources come. It's philanthropic funding. And that philanthropic funding supports anything that social work is able to do for families. And so we only have a certain amount of money, which means that we have to be boundaried in what we are able to do. So we are able to do things with that money, like create housing stability through payment one month of mortgage for a family. And that money um, the social workers work with the family and we pay the vendor or the mortgage company specifically. So the money doesn't go to families, but it does go through the social worker to that vendor to pay to create stability for a family. We may pay for a month of utility expense, whatever that looks like. We may pay for, we do discharge transportation. We don't do incoming transportation, but we do discharge, so emergent discharge transportation. We want to make sure families always can get home. We can offer that. We pay for meal vouchers. We have gift cards that pay for things like, like a $50 gift card for Target or for the grocery store to um, address maybe clothing for kids in September when they go back to school. Some of our philanthropic funds during the summertime supports camperships. So... 
uh, we pay for camp for kids that meet the requirements. So all of our philanthropic funds are accessible through us. We have to have a social worker involved. There's a social work assessment. We determine need. And then we're able to support families through the philanthropic funds. But there are limitations to that because we can't be everything to everybody with that funding. So oftentimes, so our funding is actually a funding of last resort. So social workers utilize their program fundings before uh, funds before accessing social work funds, just because oftentimes many programs have access to philanthropic funds as well. And social workers can access that for families. So it all comes out of one pot. And they came and they said, can we have a thousand dollars to do this? And I said, yep, let's get it going. And it's been a wonderful partnership. But it's really cool to be able to identify some of that kind of subtle generosity. You know, people are giving to children and we don't always see where that goes or how that touches our patients or families. And sometimes sometimes it is something as simple as giving socks to a patient or family. It's a hard conversation because we only have a certain amount of money annually. And so when we say no, no, we can't pay for parking vouchers, for example, or no, we can't pay for incoming transportation. Oftentimes providers will say, but how are we going to get them here? How are we going to do that? And it's hard. It's hard to say no in that. So we, we do have to draw those boundaries only because it's not an endless bucket of money. It'll be interesting over the next couple of years. I think we're really focusing much more strongly on social determinants of health and the assessment of that. What does that look like? And so then I think it's a really pivotal time for the hospital to really make decisions about how are we going to do that or what is our belief about this? And I think it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Definitely. Thanks to Sharon. If we wanted to leave our listeners with one take-home point from our discussion today, what would that be? I think I want just the simplicity of asking, asking social work what they can do in those moments. I don't want people to hesitate because, you know, I talked about this before. When we were doing community-based work, my role at that point was to partner with those families. And because those families brought their own level of expertise to that situation, right? And it's the same situation with doctors and nurses. You're bringing a situation to us. We're not running, right? It's a, you bring that expertise for what's happening in that moment. And then you ask for social work help and you partner with us in that. We're not going to run with it. We're going to do this with you. And I don't know if that's fully understood. So I would want people to understand that it's not about us running with the scenario and going somewhere with it that doesn't feel comfortable. It's about saying, okay, let's figure this out together. But at the very least, just ask, can you help with this? Or what are your thoughts on this? Or can we do this? Or where are we going with this? Or what do I think about this? Or where, you know, all of those things. Ask, because that's what social work's there for, to be able to provide support as much as we possibly can. And we'll tell you if we can't, but we also want you to feel comfortable to at the very least ask and see where we might go with it. And hopefully that ends up being another beautiful partnership for the family. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Well said. Thank you so much for joining us, Pam. It's been such a really interesting time to really get to know all about your work and your team. They are amazing. I know many people feel the same way as I do that your your role and everything you do to help to contribute to the patient care is so important and so appreciated. So thanks to you. It's a pleasure to be able to, to talk with you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
This podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, Boston Children's Hospital, with support from the emergency department and our inpatient medicine programs. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.